This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Alexis McLeod, Associate Professor of Philosophy in Asian and Asian American Studies at the University of Connecticut, and I'm co-host of this channel, along with Robert Talese, Carrie Figdor, and Sarah Tyson. I'm joined today by Malcolm Keating, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Yale and U.S. College in Singapore. He's here to discuss his new book, Language, Meaning, and Use in Indian Philosophy, an Introduction to Mukula's Fundamentals of Communicative Function. All right. Uh, well, Malcolm, uh, thanks for, for joining me today to t- uh, talk about your book, um, which I really uh, thought was great, by the way. Um, we'll talk a bit about that in the moment. But um, first, I wanted to start out by asking if you could tell us a bit about uh, how you came to philosophy and Indian philosophy and the topic of this uh, book in particular. Sure. So I came to philosophy in a little bit of a roundabout way. My undergraduate education was a double major in English and Spanish literature. Uh, I was sort of interested in philosophical questions around literature, interpretation, things like that. Uh, I went on and did a master's in philosophy at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. And while they don't have necessarily a program in Indian philosophy or Chinese philosophy there, I took a course, just a single introduction course, where I was introduced to Indian and Chinese thought as I was studying philosophy of language more broadly in the analytic tradition. And I, I found Indian philosophy interesting uh, in a couple of ways. I found it interesting as a conversation partner with the analytic philosophy and the Western philosophy quotes that I was, was learning, but I also found it interesting in itself and um, in how it had sort of some practical sort of transformative implications for thinking about questions in philosophy of language and philosophy of mind. So I got mm. just a little bit of a taste of it during my master's program and thought that it was something that I wanted to pursue more seriously. So uh, I, I turned to the study of, of Sanskrit. I did um, some Sanskrit, just a little bit as a graduate student uh, at large at the University of Chicago before I went on to do my PhD at the University of Texas at Austin. And it's there where I was studying in particular with Stephen Phillips in, in the philosophy uh, program there, but also uh, studied a little bit with Larry McRae, uh, who was on my dissertation committee. Cornell, uh, folks in South Asian studies, Patrick Olivelle was there before he retired, and some others. So it was there that I really started to dig into Sanskrit philosophy in, in earnest. And as a lot of people, I started out interested in Buddhist philosophy as sort of a hot topic for analytically minded right. folks. Uh, but I was really interested in questions about pragmatics and metaphor. And those are not thematized 
to the same extent as they are in what we might call the Brahminical literature, the literature that is hmm. uh, focused on thought developed from the, the Vedas, Vedic thought. So with Stephen Phillips, I started to uh, read uh, other thinkers. So for instance, Abhayad Dikshita, who's a, a late, um, you might call him a poetic or aesthetic theorist, that drew me into Mimamsa, which we can talk about a little bit, but they're, mm. uh, you might call them hermeneuticists in some sense. They're concerned with uh, interpretation, um, but also philosophical questions around language more broadly. And basically I was drawn into the work of Mukula through that sort of path, looking at Apayadikshita, Mimamsa, Alankara Shastra. And I encountered Mukula, you know, as a little single, a monograph that only really, you know, Larry McRae had written on at that point, and not much, a lot of thought had been, um, not a lot of folks had been been thinking about him, especially not philosophers who are mostly concerned with, you know, sort of Buddhists and, and, and Nyayakas. Uh, and I just thought his his approach was really interesting. Uh, it was, uh, as we can talk about, not necessarily Buddhist, Nyayaka, Mimamsa, who's sort of a, a broad interdisciplinary thinker. So I got grabbed uh, by, by his work. But it, like I said, it's a little bit of a circuitous, circuitous route. <laughs> uh, but that's how I wound up becoming interested in, in Mukula. That's really interesting. So Mukula, where does he kind of stand in terms of like the, the, the traditions that you, that you mentioned in Indian thought? Yeah, so so there there are a few ways to characterize him. So one, of course, is his time period. He's uh, his date is in the late ninth or early tenth century in Kashmir, so mm-hmm. the north of what's now now India. And uh, that the people that are working on that um, geographical sort of context and their influences from Buddhism, Shaivism, and, and things like that. So so Mukula was sort of in that mix of people, um, but. He, at least in this one work that we have, which is all we have of him, he doesn't identify himself as, for instance, a mimamsaka, someone who is focused on Vedic hermeneutics and ritual thought. He doesn't identify himself as a nyayaka, what you might consider a, a, a logician, uh, some people often use, right. or, or a Buddhist, uh, or a grammarian, although he does draw from a lot of these sources. So, uh, one way to think about these genres is that you have what uh, is often called philosophical literature. People call them the darshanas or the viewpoints. And so one way of characterizing these uh, darshanas is that there's traditionally six of them. So you have Samkhya and Yoga, Mimamsa, Vedanta, um, and, and, and so on. Um, uh, which one am I forgetting here? Uh, Mm. Naya Vaisheshika, excuse me. Uh, and, and so, so these are often the subject of philosophical inquiry for contemporary philosophers because they, as, as it were, have their philosophical questions a bit on, right. the, on the surface, right? They're thinking about things like, does the self exist? Uh, what are the basic constituent parts of reality? And so forth. You also have a genre of grammatical literature. So, Patanjali and Panani are two of the major thinkers there. Panani is well known for his reflections on the grammatical structure of Sanskrit. Uh, and Patanjali, who writes a commentary on his eight chapters, Arashtajaji, he reflects uh, a bit on the philosophical questions about 
reference? Uh, what is it that words refer to? So in the grammatical literature, although there's a lot there that's really thinking just about the Sanskrit syntax, structure of Sanskrit, there's a philosophical, strong philosophical thread throughout that literature. In particular, uh, people will probably know the, the name of Bhartsarhari, who is a, a grammarian, um, and a, but also a broadly philosophical thinker, right. far beyond just uh, Sanskrit syntax. And then there's a third sort of genre that you might think of as influencing Mukula, and this is what's known as Alankara Shastra. Shastra meaning the science of discipline, and Alankara meaning uh, sort of ornamenting or making beautiful. And so this is a, a genre which is concerned in particular with poetry and the ornaments of poetry, so things like figures right. of speech. Uh, but they're not just concerned with cataloging figures of speech, they're concerned with thinking about um, the, the way in which we understand the content of poetry, how it influences mm. our emotions, the status of fictional characters, things like that. That's all found in Alankara Shastra. So Mokula, in, in a sense, stands among these three genres. He even mentions them in, in his work mm. and draws on all of them. Uh, and so one of the things that I was trying to do with this book is to show that, that each of these genres, these sort of, um, categories of textual traditions, uh, as it were, are properly the subject of philosophical inquiry by contemporary people. We, we should be looking at them. And that they are, as it were, philosophical in, in their right. own right. Uh, one of the things I thought was interesting, you, you, you noticed you uh, talked about how Mukula's thought has been, has been somewhat neglected. And I thought when I, when I read that, I thought, um, so there's, I work on the Chinese philosopher Wang Chong, and it's a very similar situation. And he was, he was neglected, but you know, horribly neglected. And I think the reason mm -hmm. for him was that he didn't really have a team, right? He didn't have a camp that you couldn't use his views to argue for the Confucians or the Taoists or something like this. Mm -hmm. Do you get the sense that mm -hmm. that's what, for the reason behind Mukula's, Mukula's neglect, mm -hmm. or is there something mm -hmm. else going on, you think? Well, so I'm, I'm hesitant. So I think there's two things, first of all. One is, mm. who right. is he neglected by, and, and in what sense? So I think when we're thinking about contemporary um, sort of European, Anglophone, broadly Western, although I certainly don't want to leave uh, Japanese Indologists out of this, study of Indian philosophy is global, but, but when we're thinking about contemporary treatments of pre-modern sources, I'm not sure that I want to ascribe a particular reason to a neglect of a particular thinker, given that so much of right, Indian philosophy right. is yet to be uh, investigated. You know, we don't have translations of seminal figures. Um, so I think for, for one thing, you could just say, well, look, Mukla is one of many, many people whose works ought to be studied, mm, right. but we just don't have enough people uh, working on them. Um, so, so that's a, the sort of modern situation. I, I do think though that, um, it is fair to say that when you think um, about philosophy and you think maybe philosophy of language, if you have any uh, acquaintance with Indian philosophy, right. you might think, oh, well, let me go right. to uh, Nyaya philosophy on theories of reference, or let me go to Buddhist philosophy on apoha or exclusion. Uh, it's not the case that most people are going to think about okay. Alankara Shastra because they may not even know that it exists, um, depending on, on your, your training. So I think that's, yeah, I think that might be be fair. As far as the the history of Indian philosophy, pre-modern sources, 
I think Mughal's thought wasn't neglected in so much as it was absorbed. So we see Mughal's thought uh, in, in particular um, in the work of Mamata, a later uh, Indian uh, thinker in the Alankara tradition, and he draws on him extensively. So I think people right. just, um, they drew on it and they moved on. Mm. And, I, and I think also Mukla's view became a minority position. He, as we'll, we'll talk about, argues that Ananda Varden, this great seminal thinker, w- was wrong to, to argue that there's a new kind of semantic capacity. He's, uh, he's conservative. He thinks that, there, that we were fine where we were. And in Alankara Shastra, broadly speaking, most people went along with the view that that third capacity was necessary. So, so that might be another explanation for why Mukul's work, which is just one single small text as well, um, wasn't picked up on um, right, in the same right. degree as maybe. Well, one thing I wanted to mention was your your translation was was fantastic. I thought it's one of the clearest translations I've seen recently of of a Sanskrit work. And and one of the things that that kind of struck me as I was as I was reading through it was just how kind of difficult some of the some of the Indian texts, especially in philosophy of language, are to access. Um, so even for those of us who have some Sanskrit, you know, kind of the Sanskrit texts are hard, and then looking to a lot of the translations makes it even harder sometimes. Right? Um, so I wonder, like, how did you is is this a, a function of the text? Is it is it the is Mukula's text a, a clearer text, or was it your particular uh, translation choices, or how did that? How did that process happen? Well, so just in terms of the Sanskrit syntax, I, I wouldn't say that Mukula's text is hmm. um, one of the more complex texts, uh, just in terms of the structure. So I think I think that's that's fair to say. I mean, hmm. there's certainly some uh, terse and difficult sections that are uh, I comment on that I'm, I'm not quite sure maybe what he's, he's meaning by this word or that thing, and because the text is so short. Uh, you have to to make some choices. So I think that's that's definitely some of it that his his work is it's a short, hmm. fairly straightforward grammatically uh, speaking text. However, that that said, even works like that because of the particular structure of the Sanskrit language, uh, for instance, right. propensity to have long compounds, uh, long compounds and embedded relative correlative clauses in longer sentences. Um, when one translates in a way that leaves the Sanskrit syntax sort of on the surface of the English syntax, I think that can that can be very helpful for a specialist <laughs> to see the choices that you've made and how you're understanding the text. But for someone who is coming to the, the book just to understand what Mukula is saying, what I tried to do, and this is just um, on the basis of my experience reading with uh, other people, um, I mentioned in my book, Susan Phillips, uh, Parmal, um, Bill, and Larry McRae, you know, we all talked about this text, um, mm. that splitting up sentences just has to happen sometimes when you're, when you're working with a Sanskrit text. So you might have a sentence that, that runs several lines in Sanskrit. If you were to unpack that into English, it would be probably doubled or tripled in size once you make clear the relationship mm. between, for instance, parts of a compound. So in English, you know, we say fire truck, right? And that means a, a truck which is for fighting fires. Well, we all know what fire truck means, um, but essentially the, the analogy is that in Sanskrit, when you come to something that says fire mm. truck, you have to expand it. Is this a truck which is made of fire, a truck which is for fighting fire, right? All these sorts of things. 
So, so that lengthens your sentences just, just by making that explicit for the reader. And then when you have a sentence uh, that starts out, that thing which dot, 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 several <laughs> compounds, that same thing, it dot, 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 several compounds, it just gets very long. So I intentionally chose to um, split up sentences mm. uh, into shorter sentences while trying to preserve the meaning. Because what I, what I hope will happen, and you know, the, we'll see what people, people think who read the book and who know the, the Sanskrit, but what I'm trying to do is preserve the meaning of Mukula's text while making it something that um, a philosopher mm. who doesn't have much, if any, experience with Indian philosophy can pick up and read. You know, they might be a little bit puzzled at some places, but that they could get the sense of, of the words. I think that's a I think it's a great choice, and I think it it helps a lot with you know for people who are coming from kind of a more philosophical background without without Indian thought because it's really impossible. I mean, even for some of us who have some understanding of Indian thought, just pick up some of the texts and really understand what's mm -hmm. going on. So I think it's a great choices that you made, really clear. Mm -hmm. So one one thing I wanted to to, to mention is the structure of your book that I found uh, really interesting. How you have you have the mm -hmm. historical introduction, the translation, the transliteration of the Sanskrit, and then uh, extensive commentary on that. I mean, one of the things it reminded me of as I was reading it, it reminded me of, of the structure of some of the, in, the classical Indian texts themselves. Um, it looks like, it, and I was wondering, <laughs> did you intentionally mirror that? Or why, why did you pick this particular way of introducing uh, Mukula's thought? Yeah, so I, I think it is fair to say that by reading <laughs> so much commentarial literature I have, I have been influenced by the commentarial structure. Um, but but I actually think that's a good thing because what the what the Indian commentators do, and I'll just note here we don't have a commentary on localist text. So essentially, this is the one um, <laughs> I'm I'm commenting. I'm acting as a commentator on on his, his text. At least at least that I know of. We don't have any. Um, so uh, what the commentators do is they, um, to Norton Ganeri has talked about this sort of uh, commentary as an intervention into the particular context mm. that the commentator is in. So what. What even classical Indian philosophers are doing is they're picking up what the original or root text is saying. They're explaining it. They're explaining how things hang together in that original context. But then they are bringing it into connection to controversial issues of their day. So, so I think in a sense, um, there's a way to understand commentary as philosophy, right? You're, it's not just... Um, footnotes or, or, or remarking on something it is a kind of philosophy uh, and so yeah i think what i what i do and um, philosophy in general is your you know whether it's the work of bertrand russell or the work of wang Zhang or the work of mukula in a sense what philosophers are doing is they're trying to understand what thoughts came before them they're trying to engage with objections to that thought they're trying to modify that thought um, so, so yeah, so that's the sort of thing that I take myself to be doing in the book. Um, but I think really it wasn't intentionally that I'm trying to mirror a particular genre. Like I'm trying to be a contemporary commentator on Mukla so much as what I wanted to do with this book is I wanted to ensure that there are sort of multiple points of entry for Mukla's text. So I do want people who don't understand um, Indian philosophy at all to be able to pick up this book and come away with it knowing something more about Indian philosophy. And for that to happen, they have to know something about the players. They have to know something about the problem. Um, and so they're going to need to know the conceptual context, the textual context. Um, for people who are specialists, you know, they're probably just going to skip my introduction, maybe skim it a little bit. And they're going to look at the, um, maybe the commentary, how I interpret local law. They're going to look at the text. 
Um, and frankly, you know, they might just look at the the transliteration and some of the the choices that I've made in terms of splitting up um, compounds and, and things like that. So the hope is that this text is something that um, even if people can read Sanskrit and they could read Mughal's text without my translation, that there's something in there for them. Um, and for people who can't read Sanskrit, there's something in there for them. Right. And I think that I, I like the way that you did the the commentary there. I mean, it's it's kind of an introduction to Indian philosophy in a different way as well, because it introduces to the a kind of way of writing commentaries, right? That That's not as familiar in the in the West, which is, yeah. I think, great. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll just, I was just going to pick up on that a little bit. So this is something that I've actually given uh, my students as assignments um, when I'm teaching Indian philosophy, but I think they found it helpful for other contexts where I say, okay, well, I'm going to teach you a little bit about commentary, how commentary works. I want you to write a commentary on the section that we've, we've been reading. You know, identify what's the purpose of this, this section in light of what's come before it or in the context. Define some terms for me. Raise an objection and defend it. All those, are, these are things that commentators do. And so I think, you know, um, even though maybe we don't have a self-conscious tradition of commentary in, for instance, the analytic tradition, like there have been in other times and places, I do think that there are a lot of things that contemporary philosophers are doing, which which fall under the Absolutely. functions of referencing other views, things like this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, could you say something about the uh, the the particular philosophical concerns that led Mukala and other other Indian philosophers to have the kind of concern concerns with language that they do, um, especially his concerns with with uh, with language? Was it grounded in in ethical concerns or religious concerns or concerns of, as you mentioned before, poetry, things like this? Sure. So what I would say is a couple of things. So I would say that for what I was calling Brahminical thinkers before, so people for whom the Vedas are kind of the touchstone of their, both their cultural activities, their sort of self-identity, their religious practice, things like that. For them, um, the Vedas and the interpretation of the Vedas, um, the interpretation of uh, these texts, that's important. That is certainly one motivation for a concern with language that you find in Sanskrit philosophy broadly. You also find in early, early texts, like in the Upanishads, you find discussion of the creative capacity of language. Uh, you have the, the idea of language as something that brings things into existence. So it can be in a particularly religious sense in, in the way that a command, uh, a Vedic injunction brings into existence the uh, desire to perform a ritual. Um, it can be in the context of mantras, sort of repeated sayings which bring things into about to existence uh, it can also just be in the in the sense of um uh trying to think about um mm. testimony so how it is that you can come come to have knowledge on the basis of someone's telling you something for things that that either you haven't seen or you're not in a position to to observe so so all of these are are reasons that indian philosophers are concerned with language and they're concerned with it from a, hmm. a, a lot of different angles. Uh, I'd say from, from Mukala, while he certainly does talk about the epistemological function of 
language in the, the beginning of his text. And he talks about the idea that unless you have some confidence or certainty that your words pick out things in the world and that there's a, there's a relationship between the word and the reference, you're not going to be able to go about your activities, right? You're not going to be able to go uh, get the things. I mean, just an ordinary example, you know, someone gives you a grocery list, unless you have confidence that um, you have a, a, a relationship between the word and the reference, how are you right. going to go out and get the things on that list? So, um, so Mokula is concerned with this epistemic aspect, but really for Mokula, he's not writing um, just about, uh, for instance, testimony or Junctions or things like this, he is really concerned with this question mm. about poetry uh, as it relates to these other things. So um, it seems like poetry also causes us to have, if not knowledge, it causes us to have mm. cognitions, right? It causes us to have mental events. So we come to imagine, entertain, um, have understandings of. The, the figures in, in the poems. Uh, and so there, there are interesting questions about how language in that context fits with language mm. use in these other contexts. And so one of the things that I see Mukula is doing is saying that, that language in both these Vedic contexts, in these ordinary contexts, and in these poetic contexts, this is all language. And we should be able to give an account of all of these different uses of language that's, that's more or less unified. So we see him hinting at all of these other concerns, but his concern is really to um, respond to an argument that was specifically about hmm. poetic language. So this, this, uh, this distinction that you talk about um, that Mukulo makes and others about primary and secondary me uh, meaning, you mentioned you talk a little bit about how this looks like, um, and, I, and I found interesting the connection between this and, and sense and reference. And I know there was a couple of places that in the text where you where you talked about the dangers of putting too you know bringing too close together kind of con conceptions that we have in analytic philosophy and then the what what was going on in early India, but to what to what extent were those close and what was the primary and secondary meaning distinction that that they were getting at there? Yeah, so the basic way that I would explain primary meaning versus secondary meaning is that the primary meaning of, we'll talk about the primary meaning of words, is that the primary meaning of, of word, mm. a word is its reference. So, um, and we, we can talk about uh, in a moment what those different references are. There's mm. lots of philosophical discussion about that. But what you need is the same, um, uh, I would say, so you, you use a word like uh, cow, or use ordinary examples in context. And there needs to be from different instances of that word, different contexts of that word where that word is used, there needs to be something shared that that word refers to in order for us to explain how it is that we are able to acquire uh, the sort of capacity to use words. So the idea is that the primary meaning is the referent of a word that is in common among all of its different uses. Now, secondary meaning is also understood in terms of reference. 
So one of the things about Indian uh, philosophy, broadly speaking, of course, speaking of <laughs> academic generalizations, but I'll just say as a, as a generalization, uh, most Indian philosophers thought about meaning in terms of reference, at least early on. Uh, Buddhists are some important exceptions to this, and things get more complicated uh, later on. But the primary meaning of a word is its reference. Directly, I say cow, you get the reference. The, uh, for many thinkers, it's the universal of cow, or for some it's the particular cow, et cetera. Um, but in, so under certain conditions, you can have indirect reference. So if I say cow in the context of a metaphor, on the basis of the primary reference, you come to have understanding of the right. next thing, the indirect reference. So one, one way you can think about it is sort of two stages of, of cognition, even though we're not necessarily aware of them. So the reason, <clears throat> and so, so the thing I would say is that the language causes this cognition of a referent, and the primary meaning causes it constantly, directly, in all cases, the indirect or secondary meaning comes up by means of that first understanding, and it only occurs in certain conditions. Now, this is not exactly, I would say, the same thing as the mm. sense reference distinction in contemporary um, and modern analytic philosophy. Uh, and again, here just to generalize it, you can think of a sense as a way right. of cognizing a reference. Um, <clears throat> it's not about a second stage of uh, cognition or an indirect reference. Now, the, the point that I think you're hinting at in, in my book is that while Mukula doesn't think in terms of, I think, what we would consider sense reference there are places in the text where he talks about what I've translated as semantic imbuing, uh, maybe a little uh, sort of a lot packed in there, but the Sanskrit term is uparakta, and it just means something like colored or hmm. shaded or tinged or something like that. And so there's a, under some conditions, in some, some context, um, in light of the, the primary, um, let me put it this way, we can understand something in light of something else. So for instance, if I say, under some conditions, the villages on the Ganges, this is a, co a common example of secondary reference where um, I don't mean the villages directly on the Ganges. What I mean is mm -hmm. the villages right up next to the Ganges. So in some contexts, I'm basically just trying to say, look, the village is on the bank of the Ganges. Um, the fact that on the Ganges, which in Sanskrit is a single word in the locative case, the fact that I say on the Ganges, well, I'm just picking out the bank of the Ganges because it's just right next to the Ganges. But I'm not thinking of the bank in terms of the Ganges in, in any way. It's just, you just look, they're right next to each other not impacting my cognition of the village insofar as it's on the, the bank of the Ganges. But what Mukula says is in some cases, the Ganges, which is the primary referent of on the Ganges, uh, that comes to influence the way that we understand the village. So, and this is something maybe like connotation. So the, the Ganges in, um, in the Indian context is a holy river. And so, if you say the village is on the Ganges, under the right kinds of, in, in the right situation, and we can talk about what those situations are, you would understand the village as 
basically being a, a very, right. maybe a holy village because it's right next to the Ganges. And so that's the distinction between primary and secondary reference. And the idea of semantic imbuing is something like sense, but I don't, I want to mm. be real careful and say it's not exactly. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So w- one thing that I, I found really interesting was this idea that the, the primary meaning of a word like cow or something like this could be a universal and that a particular referent, like a particular cow, would have to be through some implied or, or secondary meaning. Does, does Mukala associate, uh, so he, he has this concern with poetic meaning, as you were talking about, does he associate that meaning with the kind of secondary meaning that, that the use of cow might have if it's meant to refer to the individual? Um, or, and, w- and why does he make this move of taking words like, like cow to primarily indicate universals rather than particulars? Yeah. So, so again, this is one of the controversies that Mukla touches upon in his text, but doesn't he doesn't spend a lot of time developing, but it is a discussion that, for instance, if you if you look in the the Nyaya Sutras, the Mimamsa Sutras, or more specifically the Shlokavarta commentaries on those texts, you'll see a lot of discussion about this. It's also in the work of the thinker that I mentioned earlier, Patanjali, grammarian. So. So there is this discussion about what is it that is the primary reference of a word. And what Mukula says, and here he is drawing on Patanjali, for instance, um, as well as some um, engaging with Mimamsa or Hermeneutics. What Mukula says is there are different kinds of words. There's nouns, there's action words or, or verbs in other words. There's words that are adjectives or, and there's, there's names. So we can characterize our the syntax of our language right? characterize it in different ways. What he says is that these different kinds of words have different reference. So for him, he says that noun, their primary reference is the universal, whereas action words, their primary reference is something which um, is to be done, something that is yet to be done, um, and, and, and so forth. And so properties uh, refer to this, sorry, Adjectives refer to properties which already exist, and names refer to, well, names sort of refer to things as they are contingently denoted. They're not picking out a, a feature of the person, right? So I'm, I'm Malcolm, but that, that doesn't refer to any sort of essential thing about me. It's just a contingent right. fact. So you're, you're Malcolm. So what Mukula does is he says there's these four categories of words, and they have four different primary references. And this is, this is really following Patanjali. But the idea that nouns refer to universals, I, I think one, there's a few ways to motivate this idea. And uh, I think one of, one of the ways to do this is that um, if you're talking about something like um, cow, um, you are talking about primarily something's being a cow. Right? So you're talking about 
uh, if I say cow, um, I'm referring to the nature of something being a cow. I'm not referring to a particular cow. And why is that? Well, for one thing, you might want to say our um, use of language needs to be able to uh, account for uh, commands. Um, so, for instance, you say, uh, I, I want you to go get, go get a cow. If a command were to refer to a particular cow, um, once you've gotten, once someone has fulfilled that command in the sense of getting that particular cow, you can't fulfill that command again. Right? So this is coming from the sort of Mimamsa ritual context where you have these commands, go, go, go get this kind of thing, go, go do this kind of thing. And, and, and the idea is you need to be able to refer to something which, um, which precedes in existence these individual things. Um, so, of course, this is a, this is a view that uh, gets, gets criticized by other thinkers. But uh, notice here that what Mukla argues is this isn't to say that we're unable to refer to the particular cow, not Daffy or Flossy. It's just that that's a mm. secondary uh, function. It's insofar as a cow, Bessie, has a relationship with cowhood that we're able to use the word cow to pick out that, that particular cow. And so in the right context, uh, when I say, um, go, go get the cow, and I think one little footnote here, um, before I finish my sentence, one little footnote is that, uh, we might in English think, well, that's at least in part what the use of the definite and the indefinite article is for. Um, well, in Sanskrit, there there are no definite or indefinite articles, although there are certainly um, pronouns which can play a similar role. So, so what we have is the word cow, and we have to understand, well, how is this being used? Is this being used in the generic sense, in the in a particular sense, and so on. So. It's a matter of the context of the sentence that helps us, that, well, not just helps us, it determines what the referent of that word is. So when, Mukula says, there's a relationship between the primary and secondary meaning, when there is an obstacle to understanding the primary meaning, um, in, in that case, um, so, you're able to understand um, that cow is meant in its secondary sense. And there also has to be a reason for your speaking that way. So uh, if I'm going to say, go, go get a, a cow, and uh, I'm, I'm actually meaning a particular, as opposed to a, a general you know, cow type thing, you have, to, you have to be able to attribute to me some reason for using the word mm. in this sort of derivative secondary so, so this is how Mukula explains that, yeah, nouns primarily refer to universals, but this doesn't mean that we don't all the time use nouns to indirectly refer to particular things. Uh, and it's the philosophers uh, that notice this. You know, ordinary people don't reflect on this. We don't, we don't notice these things, but it's the philosophers that are able to tell us, well, actually, this is a secondary um, secondary capacity. One thing that I thought was interesting, you talked about uh, relatively early on in the book, that you've got this kind of third 
mode of uh, signification or meaning, right? Where you, so you've got the primary and the secondary, and then there's this, then there's something suggestion, um, which Mukula rejects. Um, could you explain this controversy about suggestion and yeah. why and why Mukula yeah. rejects this category? Yeah, that's right. And I think this is one thing that's important to keep in um, in mind as we're talking about Mukula is that this text comes in after hmm. the work of Anandavardhana, who is this another Kashmiri thinker who predates Mukula by maybe about a hundred years or so. And he argues for what you're you're characterizing or calling suggestion. Uh, it's the word dvani in Sanskrit. And um, dvani, I mean, uh, a recent translation that I really like, uh, Larry McRae has translated this as resonance. Uh, the, the meaning of dvani in its very literal sense is something like the reverberation as you might have of a, the sound of a drum or something. Uh, and so dvani is the idea that when you, for instance, talk about the village on the Ganges, um, there is a resonance, a suggestion, something else uh, as of the village being holy because it's next to the Ganges. And what, what Anandavardhana argues is that we need to have this third capacity of language in addition to the primary and secondary, because we can't account for uh, what poetry does without it. And so, so let me explain that and then I'll get back to, to Mukula. So the, the idea is that, as I mentioned, there are these three requirements that aren't, aren't new to Mukula, but these are fairly standard requirements that when you have uh, an incongruity of the primary meaning, when there is some kind of relationship between the primary and secondary meaning and some kind of motive to understand the secondary meaning, then we have the secondary meaning. So, so if I say the village is on the Ganges um, and you think, well, literally the village can't be on the Ganges because that would mean that people would be drowning in the river. Um, oh, but villages the, 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 next to the uh, Ganges River is a bank. So there's a relationship of contiguity or proximity. Oh, and the, why would you speak that way? Well, maybe, maybe shorthand, right? You, um, hmm. you just want me to know that the village is right up next to the Ganges. So then I can say, okay, what, what's being indicated or given by secondary meaning is just insert the words on the banco. But what Anandavardhana says is, well, look, that, that accounts for that additional meaning. But when you say something like the village is on the Ganges and you say it in order to convey the holiness of the Ganges, you don't have an explanation for that meaning that comes along as well, that sort of resonance or that suggestion. And, and that's not a matter of uh, these three, three characteristics. Uh, and so he, he, he has a whole very long uh, text. So like, like I said, Mukula's text is rather short. Anandavardhana has a, a quite long uh, text, the Dvanyaloka, where he discusses this. And he says, he gives all these examples where he says, look, you can have this suggestion or resonance without secondary meaning. You can just have a straightforward, so in poetry, you might just have a description of someone. And that might suggest certain things. Um, you can have this sort of resonance um, in addition to a particular figure of speech in a poem. So if we think about 
Shakespeare, for instance, to use a Western sort of English example, um, Shakespeare has uh, long, you know, all the world's a stage, we are merely players, and so on. You could analyze the individual figures of, of speech, the individual metaphors in, in that soliloquy. But what Anand of Ardna would say is there's a further suggestion of a larger metaphor that is that is not reducible to just those parts. So, um, and the most important thing I would, would say for Ananda Vardhana is that he has this sense that what poetry does is it causes people to have uh, an experience of what's known as rasa. Now, rasa means something like, uh, literally it's something like flavor or, or sap mm. or like a juice of a uh, but it just means a highly um, uh, aestheticized uh, kind of emotional experience. So if you, if you, I don't know, to use another Shakespearean example, you watch Romeo and Juliet, you don't have an experience of love, right? You're not in love with Romeo or Juliet or any of the players, mm. but you have a sort of aestheticized experience of love. And what Ananda Vardhana says is that rasa, that is a kind of meaning. And that is a kind of meaning that can't be accounted for in terms of just the primary meaning. I mean, if I say, um, you know, I write a poem and I say, this poem is about love, that's not going to cause you to have that experience. Um, and just the particular metaphors, those don't have as their content this aesthetic hmm. experience. So this is what Anandavarna argues. And Mukula is arguing against that. He says, we can, if we broaden our notion of these three criteria, we can account for even rasa dvani, that is the suggestion or the resonance of this aesthetic experience in, in terms of secondary. That's interesting. I wonder, do you think that, uh, that Mukula's solution there is, is kind of fits better with a kind of contemporary context and philosophy of language than, because it seems like it, people might be more willing to take something like that on. Yeah, so it's it's funny. So Anana Vardhana um, is he's quite he's quite fun in some places. So he takes up some potential objections. Uh, he lives before Mukula, so he's not thinking of Mukula per se. But he has this long section where he discusses whether rasa and rasa dvani or dvani in general, resonance suggestion in general, mm -hmm. can be known by inference. Uh, and so he's of course thinking here of the uh, anumana, which is a very specific, maybe subtype of what we would consider as inference. But anyway, he, he, he gives some reasons to think that, you know, inference is not going to get us this thing. And at a couple of points, he just says, you know, you logicians, uh, you're, you're not in, in any kind of position to understand poetry. You know, so I, I just think, you know, if he met an analytic philosopher today, he might be like, what, what are you, what are you doing? You're dissecting this thing. You're giving these sorts of analysis but you're missing the the suggested sort of resonant mm. meaning and that's not a matter of logic right um uh, now it's not in mukula but in jayantabhatta who's a, a nyayaka or a sort of a logician he has a little section where i think he's taking a swipe at ananda vardhana and he basically says people who don't know anything about language say say this you know people who take themselves to, to know stuff so there, there seems to be a little bit of a tension here between the sort of um, 
uh, you know, epistemologically, logically inclined thinkers and people who are engaging mm. um, in particular with poetry. But what I would say about Mukula here is that that whatever you think of Mukula's solution, and it, and it is a short text, so I think, um, you know, I tried to expand on what I think he's saying there, but it, it's, a, it's a fairly brief text. Whatever you think about his, his view, he does at least go through examples of poetry, examples of poetry, some of which Ananda Vardhana himself used, some just other examples. And he tries to give an account of how it is that secondary meaning, lakshana or indication, can, can get us these, hmm. these uh, suggested meanings. And so he's at least taking seriously poetry alongside of these other uses of language as something that needs to be grappled with philosophically. Um, so, so no, I think the one thing that contemporary uh, philosophers might say, and I think indeed have said, is that this discussion starts out with a presupposition, which is that things like rasadvani are artha or, or meanings. Now, depending on your understanding of meaning, you might just say like, Davidson, or more recently Ernie Lepore and Matt Stone, just say, "Well, look, there. Sure, there's all kinds of interesting psychological things that go on when we read poetry and when we read metaphors, but it's just a category mistake to call them meaning." Um, but but here Mukula is taking on seriously the idea that this is an art, that this is a meaning, um, because it is something that arises out of our understanding of the language. Mm understanding of the, the, the poetry. Uh, and, and with that presupposition, then he has to give an account of how it is that right. we come to have that, that content. One of, the, one of the things that I thought was interesting that you did toward the end was to kind of bring in the comparative uh, aspect and talking about kind of comp comparing Mukula to, to some of what's going on in contemporary philosophy. And you, there was one point at which you compared uh, uh, Mukula's views to those of Francois Reconati, and you said on, concerning on what is said in a statement, which was interesting. You discussed a, a syncretic mm -hmm. view that he mentions um, that he ultimately rejects. I wonder if you could say something a bit about what that view is, and, mm -hmm. and is, is this something like, do you take mm -hmm. this to be something like what's going on in, in Mukala? Sure. Yeah, so let me back up a little bit before I, I dig into that and, and just to talk about the, this idea of the sort of mm. comparative philosophy that I was trying to, to do in the book. So w one of the things that I really wanted to do in this book was not to say, um, Mukula solves a particular mm. problem already found in rare analytic philosophy. Um, so uh, what I was not trying to do with this discussion was to say, well, look, Francois Reconati and other people who are, you know, the relevance theorists and others who are discussing uh, pragmatics and semantics and the boundary between them, um, they've identified a really important problem. And here's how Mukula can pose uh, either an alternative view or strengthen an existing view. Um, and, I, and I intentionally do that because I think what I want people to do when they read the book is to come back to um, their sort of own projects in, in philosophy of language or, or wherever, mm -hmm. and maybe be able to think about it maybe in a new way. Um, so I'm a bit agnostic in, in the book here about whether I think Francois Reconati has things right in his analysis or that the problems of 
for semantic pragmatic uh, distinction in contemporary analytic philosophy are well put. I mean, it's a huge literature on it, for one thing. Um, but so what I was trying to do at the end of the book is to just give a, a, a uh, I, I would say, suggestion, as it were, to the reader of ways that you might be able to think about Mukla's work hmm. in light of some of the issues in contemporary philosophy. So, so that said, one of the things that I found that was interesting is that Mukla has this little little discussion, again, brief sort of um, schematic of how it is that we get from the primary meaning of words uh, all the way up through what is fully expressed in the context of another. So you can talk about the reference of words. Uh, you can talk about what the word indicates or uh, conveys indirectly in a secondary manner. You can talk about how words together in combination in a sentence express something. And you can talk about how sentences themselves indicate or, or have a, a secondary meaning at the level of the entire expression. And so Mukula has a, a little section, I won't get into all the, the technicalities here, where he tries to take on board different views of sentence meaning, how it is that we come to have a unified cognition from uh, what you might think are just a, a list of words with uh, their corresponding reference. How, how does that construe into a unity which gives us a cognition of a state of affairs. And so he seems to put forward his own view, which is a, uh, a syncretic or combination of other views on offer, where one way to understand it is something like the, the word has its primary function. Uh, and, and this expresses something sort of at a very minimal level, like cowhood, right? Um, and that from that, uh, from cowhood, you can get the um, an indicated meaning. And, and what happens is that that indicated meaning is part of the process of, of that discrete set of words becoming a sentence meaning. So um, the idea is that just a bunch of words on their own are going to give the, the ordinary primary reference. When those words come together into the context of a sentence, indication functions in order to uh, sort of constrain um, the, the referent of those words. Um, and then a further process can happen where um, you can have another additional uh, indicatory function that takes the sentence as its whole content. So in other words, it's not just that the word Ganges gives rise to on the bank, but that a whole sentence, for instance, um, uh, poetic uh, mm. metaphors, for instance, can give rise to something further. And so the connection here with Recanati is that Francois Recanati, uh, so he's a, he's a contextualist, um, and he, he basically has tried to, in one of his books, he, he defends contextualism, so the, the view that the meaning of a word um, is, is basically always 
contextual. So there is there is no really helpful right. sense in which we can understand the meaning of a word in isolation from it. Uh, and so in the course of his explaining um, his view, he identifies um, uh, as what he calls syncretists, so for instance, people like Kent Bach and others, people who say, well, look, what you have is you have an utterance of some words and you have a sort of semantic interpretation which gives you a sentence meaning. And that sentence meaning um, may not even be something that is truth evaluable or propositional. It's just, um, it's just gonna be something like um, a, bare, a bare minimum. So um, I'm thinking here of, of a case, for instance, red. Um, uh, the word red, you might say, has uh, a minimal meaning, um, which is just something like redness, or the property of redness. But when you use the word red in a sentence, sentences um, are going to be true under different conditions. So I could say the table is red, and the table is red when it's painted red on the outside. Um, but the conditions, the truth conditions for a bird is red are different on this view than when I say a table is red. Um, because for, for the bird, a bird is red when its wings and body are just red in color, but it's not when it's, it's painted red, right? Uh, and so you can get these different um, truth conditions that correlate to these different different meanings of red. So the idea for these syncretic theorists, is, uh, as Recanati calls them, is that you get something that's sort of underdetermined um, uh, in terms of the, um, the truth condition. And then a, a later necessary semantic process which they call saturation, gets us something which is a sort of a minimal, uh, truth conditional, uh, propositional content. Um, and then you have other, what we would call pragmatic processes, things which um, go beyond the level of just the, um, the minimal proposition that we need for um, it to be uh, truth valuable or propositional. You can then um, sort of enrich sort of make broader um, or narrow the, the senses in, in context. And then even further than that, you can have an optional sort of pragmatic process that gets you not just what a speaker has said in its full sense, right. but sort of what they've communicated, what they've um, implicated with the content of what they've said. So that, that goes, it's, it's going very rather quickly, but the, the basic idea here is that in contemporary uh, analytic philosophy, there are people that have this theory on which we have these different levels of, uh, of um, words and sentences expressing uh, their meanings. And in some way, this seems to map on ways, on the way that Mukula's view tries to take into account all of these different processes which get us um, uh, the primary meaning of a word as well as something beyond it, both at the level of the mm -hmm. word and the level of the sentence. So that's what that last chapter is about. But like I said, the goal is to say, look, here, here's, some, here's some interesting connections. But I conclude by saying, sort of giving a little warning, like, okay, before we go off and say, look, that Mukla or any other Indian thinker has said exactly what uh, Kent Bach or Francois Ricamonti mm -hmm. has said, let's think back again about the context so I kind of close the book by reminding us about the original context. And, and the hope is that that might help us 
sort of think differently about contemporary. Absolutely. I mean, the, the kind of asking new questions, right, when we see the different contexts and the different kinds of philosophy that are being done in, in India and China and elsewhere, I think is, is really important. And that's something I think your book can really, can really help, uh, help in, in contemporary philosophy. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the hope. I mean, I mean, I mean, honestly, so the, the book is, is out there. I think um, what pre-modern Indian philosophy can do for contemporary philosophy, you know, I'm in some ways I'm a little bit agnostic on that because I think there, there's a couple of ways that, that looking at these texts can be helpful. And one is at the level just of having people think broadly about philosophy, having people think broadly, I mean, just in the context of philosophy of language, thinking about different languages, thinking about different sort of uh, linguistic datum, as it were, different um, right. poems, bits of speech, and how other people Absolutely. have thought about it. So, so I think there's a lot of different ways in which this pre, to, you know, pre-modern philosophy, whether Indian or, or other, can be helpful for things that we're concerned with right now. Uh, not the least to push back sometimes on on our fixation on a particular mm, right. our question. Maybe we look back and we say, "Well, wh- why are they why are they so caught up on this? Why are they so concerned with this, this question?" And sometimes, you know, I think, "Well, let's let's try and flip that a little bit. Why is it why is it that we're so concerned mm. about looking at things in this particular way?" So, so that's absolutely that's, really that's great. So, so what's uh, what's next on the horizon for you? What uh, what projects are you working on now? Sure. So I have one thing sort of uh, in in the pipeline, as it as it were. So I have a an edited volume on orthopathy, which I didn't we didn't get a chance to mention, but this was another piece of mm-hmm. Mukula's thinking that he I think identifies uh, a particular epistemic instrument, the pramana, uh, so perception and inference are paradigmatically uh, two of them. Um, this one's called orthopathy, and he I think pretty. It's implicit, but it's pretty much there in his text. He thinks this is responsible for how it is that we come to know these indicated or secondary meanings. So as I was thinking about this, uh, this idea of orthopathy, which I don't, I haven't found a really nice translation for it, but some people use presumption, some people use uh, postulation. It's the idea that uh, there's something that you you need to postulate or posit in order to account for some obstacle or some obstruction. So, you know, if you think back to the idea of secondary meaning, one of those three criteria for secondary meaning or indicated meaning to function is that there's an obstacle. And so the idea is that when there's an obstacle, the thing which we use to resolve that obstacle is the secondary meaning. And orthopathy broadly is a, a means of knowing which allows us to know things on the basis of these different kinds of, of obstacles. So by looking at Mukula on orthopathy, I got really interested mm. just in orthopathy in general. And unlike, say, perception and, and inference, um, which have gotten a, a fair bit of discussion, uh, orthopathy is not a, it's not one of the epistemic instruments that I think has been really discussed quite a lot, but it has implications for our thoughts about, about inference, for our, our thoughts about logic and so on. So there's an edited volume in the works where um, I've gotten a bunch of really awesome Sanskritists and philosophers together to to do translations of really seminal texts on orthopathy, some of which haven't been translated before, and then to close that off with some 
some essays, uh, some of which engage directly with the text in the volume, uh, many of which engage sort of with one another uh, and with contemporary philosophy. So this is this is um, should be out in in another year is the hope. So that's the project that's just been finished, um, save for you know, nice. final edits and such. Uh, the one that I'm working on now is a new one is about uh, a Mimamsika oh, yes. Kumarla Bhatta. So he's a very important early, uh, you might say Vedic hermeneuticist, but he, he's a philosopher who takes as his starting point reflection on the Vedas and their interpretation. His thought about language and epistemology is really important for Alankara Shastra, this tradition of aesthetics. Uh, and so he's a couple of centuries before Mukala. So I've been, actually just the past couple of, of weeks, I've been digging into a chapter in the Shloka Vartika, or expansive verse commentary that he's written on uh, the Mimamsa Sutras, the Sutra text, uh, where he talks about how we come to know similarity. Uh, and so what I'm thinking about now for, for this next book project is the relationship between how we come to know that things are similar, how we come to use that sort of similarity judgment in metaphor, how we use that in analogical reasoning uh, and, and things like that. So it's the core of it, I think, is really the upamana or the comparison chapter in Kamarla, but it branches out into these other questions about comparison in, in other that's cool. Okay. So that, that's a, that's really great. That any chance yeah. of a of a Shloka Vartika translation sometime down the on the road? <laughs> we really need a good one. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Uh, we we do. Um, so I've been I've been I've been reading uh, the, the Upamana chapter with uh, with John Tabor. Actually, is what I've been been doing, um, working on my translation. And it is possible that I'll have a translation, maybe in an appendix to the book or something like that. But uh, yeah, I, I think we do. We need more translations of all of these texts. And, you know, I think um, the thing, that, mm. thing about these translations is right. that none of them are going to be the final word on any of these, these thinkers. So we have Cha's translations, which, you know, they're really important translations, even if they have, you know, maybe he's got some mistakes in it, but it's essentially Jaw is a, we, we've got right. his kind of commentary in a sense on Kamarla because we understand how he's interpreted Kamarla. Um, we, we need to have other people doing that um, and doing that for different audiences. So um, I have my translation of Mukula. Johannes uh, Bronkhorst has another sort of section of Mukula in a Shabda reader just out. Uh, I'm hoping other people will start picking up other Alankara thinkers who will get pieces of Kamarla. Um, yeah, so we can just get more and more people reading these texts and, and maybe using using their thought in, in various ways in their own work or being sort of interested to explore more. Definitely, definitely. A lot. Well, I want to thank you, Malcolm, again for uh, for joining me to talk about your book. It's a great book. Um, everybody check it out, Language, Meaning, and Use in Indian Philosophy. Fantastic book. Thanks again, Malcolm. Thanks. Talk to you later. Great. Thanks a lot. I appreciate your time, Alex.